Hi friends, Gerald Law here. Welcome to the Love Lake Norman podcast. Love Lake Norman is a church in Cornelius, North Carolina, whose mission is to help people find and follow Jesus. You're about to hear a message that will be helpful and hopeful. Our goal is to encourage you to take the next step in your faith. Wherever you are, we want you to know that God has a plan and a purpose for you. Thanks for spending time with us today. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, uh, there's, a, there's a man named Lee Strobel, who's a Christian. He's been a pastor, he's an author and a speaker now, and he's written books called uh, The Case for Christ and The Case for Christmas, among other books. But before he made a profession of faith in Jesus, he was an atheist and a big time skeptic. He was also a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. So uh, he was a natural cynic and he tells this story that I wanna share with you as we begin this different kind of Christmas series. He says that it was Christmas Eve and he was at his desk and he was thinking about this family that he had done a story on a month before, the Delgado family. It was a story about some of the poorest people in Chicago. Uh, A grandmother named Perfecta and her two granddaughters, Lydia and Jenny, were living in this tiny two-room apartment on the west side of Chicago. And he had uh, walked into their apartment to interview them and he couldn't believe how empty it was. There was no furniture, there was no rugs, there was nothing on the walls, just a small kitchen table and a handful of of rice. Almost no possessions whatsoever. 11-year-old Lydia, 13-year-old Jenny, Uh, They owned one short sleeve dress each plus one sweater to share between them. And so they would walk a half mile to school together in the cold and the wind. And Lydia would would wear the sweater halfway and then hand it to her sister to wear the rest of the way. And despite all of that and, and the arthritis that Perfecta had, she talked confidently about her faith in Jesus, convinced he, he hadn't abandoned them. There was no sense of despair, no sense of self-pity, just hope and peace. And Strobel wrote the article about them. And about a month later on Christmas Eve, he decided to drive over to their house and to see how they were doing after this article. So, so Jenny opened up the door and Strobel said he couldn't believe what he saw. The Tribune readers had responded to his article by filling up their home with gifts. Rooms that were full of furniture and appliances and rugs on the floor and a Christmas tree with stacks of presents underneath it. There were boxes of food everywhere. There were, there were dozens of warm winter coats and scarves and gloves and thousands of dollars in cash. He, he said he was surprised by the outpouring of love, but even more surprised with what he saw them doing. Perfecta and her two granddaughters were getting ready to give much of what they had been given away. He asked her why, and she said, our neighbors are still in need. We we can't have plenty while they have nothing. That's what Jesus would want us to do. And and he was blown away. He asked her what she thought about the generosity of of these people. And she said, "This this is wonderful. We didn't do anything to deserve any of this. It's a gift from God, but she added, it's not his greatest gift. We celebrate that tomorrow. That's Jesus to her. This child in a manger was a gift that we didn't deserve, but that meant everything. More than all the stuff, the possessions, all the comfort and security that she could have. And Strobel writes, at that moment, something inside of me wanted desperately to know this Jesus, because in a sense, I saw him in Perfecta and her granddaughters. They had hope, while he just had anxiety. They, they, they looked to heaven for their hope, while he was just looking out for himself. But he was intrigued 
And, and years later, this would set off a, a journalistic journey for Strobel into who this child in the manger really was, which ended up turning into more than that. At the end of his investigation, which he undertook to disprove Christianity, the evidence that he found left him no other choice, and he became a committed follower of Jesus Christ. This series is about that evidence. It's an exploration of that baby in a manger. Who was he really? Can we even know? And why does it matter? If you have those questions, if you've had those questions, you're welcome. You're welcome here. I've had them too. If you're a skeptic, maybe even a cynic, I hope that you'll pause for a few minutes and drop your guard a little bit and consider with me the claims of Jesus and the evidence that we do have. If you are a follower of Jesus, I hope that you'll take what we talk about in this series together and you'll let it bolster and boost your faith so that you can, as, as the scriptures say, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you, to give the reason for the hope that you have. I'm gonna ask you to be a journalist with me during this series, or, or actually I'm gonna ask you to be a shepherd Watch what the shepherds do in the story that you've no doubt heard before uh, as told by the gospel writer, Luke. Luke records it like this, the birth of Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken in the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. And so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, listen to this, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. I like that. Let's go to Bethlehem and let's go see this thing that's happened, which, which the Lord has told us about. Let's go see it for ourselves is what they were saying. I don't want to take anyone else's word for it. I want, to, I want to see this child for myself and then I want to draw my own conclusions. I think that's a great approach to faith. I want to, I want to challenge you to do that. Be like the shepherds, they heard the announcement and it prompted action. They had to do something about it. You've heard the announcement for quite a while now. So many times, in fact, that maybe it's just become another story that you hear. Just another thing that's said, kind of like how we talk about other things that happened in the past that were like these massive events, but we don't, we don't feel anything about them anymore. 
So I want to remind you, and as kindly but as directly as I can, that the claim that God came to earth as a helpless baby is kind of a big deal, like the biggest of deals. There's no bigger deal than this that ever happened, because if that's true, if what Christianity claims is actually true, it has the power to change your life, your world, and your eternity forever. So let's look out at, at that over the next three weeks. Now, uh, if I'm going to try to discover who this Jesus guy was, who this baby in the manger is, the first thing that I am going to need to know is this, is what we're reading trustworthy? Like, like the story I just read, is that real? How can I know that that really happened? Is it reliable? Eyewitness testimony can be very, very powerful, right? You ever witnessed something and you had to stay around and talk to the police about it? Maybe you saw a crime that was committed or you saw a really bad car wreck and they needed a statement from you. They'll, they'll ask you what you saw. Eyewitness testimony in a crime is super important. It can be a game changer to a defense and a prosecution. When a witness has an opportunity to, to observe a crime and there's no ulterior motives and, and the witness is truthful, that is powerful. That is important in investigating anything, anything that happened in history. Even the issue of a child being born and placed in a manger who would become known as the son of God. So the question is, what are the eyewitness accounts that we have? What do we have? Do we have testimony of people who were face to face with Jesus, who knew him, who listened to what he taught, who saw his miracles, who saw his death, who encountered him after his resurrection? Do we have people who faithfully recorded what was true Let's talk through that. And I want, out a point, I want to point out a few things to you here, kind of, kind of quick, but let's point them out. We have four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these are supposed to be the eyewitness accounts of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But how do we know who actually wrote them? Like, like who did it? If, you, if you've ever watched a TV show about the gospels, about the Bible, or you've sat in on a college religion class, you've probably heard people discussing who actually wrote these books. And, and so it's important when you hear all of that to know that in the years after they were written, their authorship was never in dispute. The, the, the early church 100% believed that Matthew, the tax collector who became a disciple, wrote the first gospel. And, and John Mark, who was a companion of Peter, he wrote the book of Mark. And, and Luke, who was Paul's doctor, he, he wrote the books of Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts. And, and with John, there is sometimes a minor question about whether it was the Apostle John or a different John, but it turns out that that's not a very big deal. The thing is, all of these people were unlikely people to, 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 at the time of this happening, to be writing these accounts. Mark and Luke, they weren't even in the original 12 disciples. Matthew was a tax collector, probably hated just a little less than Judas. Now, you can contrast that later on with, with these other so-called gospels that were supposed to have been written by people like Peter and Philip and Mary and James. Those names carried a lot more weight back then. And so other people wrote these fictional accounts and attached their names to them and made them sound more important. The question still is, how do we know that these guys wrote the gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? The, the oldest testimony about that comes from a writer named Papias, who in about 125 AD, he said that Mark had carefully and accurately recorded Peter's eyewitness, 
observations. He says this, he says that Mark made no mistake and he did not include any false statement. Papias also says Matthew had preserved the teachings of Jesus too. And then another guy, you may have heard of Irenaeus. He wrote in, in 180 AD, he confirmed all this. He said this, he said, Matthew published his own gospel among the Hebrews and in their own tongue. When Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel in Rome and founding the church there, after their departure, Mark, the disciple, an interpreter of Peter, himself handed down to us in writing the substance of Paul's preaching. Luke, the follower of Paul, sat down in a book, the gospel preached by his teacher. And then John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned on his breast, himself produced his gospel while he was living in Ephesus in Asia. Irenaeus said that. We can have confidence that the, the gospels were written by Matthew, Mark, and John, the companion of Peter and Luke, the companion of Paul. And Luke was like a first century journalist. And if that's true, we can be sure that the events they record are based on either direct or indirect eyewitness testimony. So another question that's important in, the, in this though is this. I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to get through Alexander Hamilton's biography. Like it's very thick. I'm still trying to get through it. The gospels aren't written like a biography that you would pick up on the shelf at Barnes and Noble, are they? They're not written like that. Mark, for instance, he doesn't talk about the birth of Jesus at all. He doesn't say anything about Jesus' early adult life. He just focuses on a three-year period and spends half of his gospel on the things that happened in the last week of Jesus' life. How do we explain that? What's the reason for that? There's two reasons. One is literary and the other is theological. The the literary reason is this, that that this is how people wrote biographies in the ancient world. They didn't have a sense that we do, that it was important to give equal time to a person's life from start to, to finish, or to even tell things chronologically. They just didn't do that. The only reason they would record something was if it seemed like there were lessons to be learned. They would dwell on something, only if they felt like it was important and they, they could help other people out. That's the literary reason, but the theological reason is this. Christians believe that even as great as the life of Jesus was, his teachings, his miracles, they don't mean anything unless they were rooted in history. That the events actually happened, that Jesus died and was raised from the dead, and that this provided atonement and forgiveness of sin. And this is why Mark spends half of his gospel on the week leading up to the, the like, and, and through the crucifixion. It was that important in his mind. The question that that brings up is that, doesn't the fact that the writer has a theological agenda, doesn't that cast doubt on whether they would actually be truthful and objective? Like, isn't it, isn't it likely that their theological agenda would cause them to color and twist some things in history to make it sound better? Add in a miracle of Jesus here or there. Make him claim to be God when he didn't really do that. And on and on. One thing about ancient history, nobody wrote history if there wasn't a reason to learn from it. And and they had great reason to record what they saw and heard accurately. Uh, There's a biblical historian named Craig Blomberg who who makes this kind of comparison. He he says it like this as as a way of comparison. He says, some people usually for anti-Semitic reasons try to downplay the horror of the Holocaust. But, But it's been Jewish scholars who have created museums and written books and preserved artifacts and documented eyewitness testimony related to the Holocaust. Now, um, there's a very 
ideological purpose behind that, to make sure it never happens again. But they have unquestionably been the ones to most faithfully and objectively report and record the historical truth. So in terms of how something is recorded, Christianity was based on these historical claims that God uniquely entered space and time in our world in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. And so the ideas Christians were trying to promote, they needed to be carefully recorded and as historical as possible. Now, it's, it's one thing to say that the stories we have about Jesus are rooted in eyewitness testimony, but it's another to say that it was preserved accurately until it was finally written down years later. And this is a major point of contention for some people. One of the arguments by some is that the gospels were, they were written so long after the events that actually happened that of course they got distorted. Of course things got changed or exaggerated outright. Taking Jesus from really a really wise teacher into this mythology that he was the son of God. There's arguments about when Matthew and Mark and Luke and John were written, like, like when were they actually written? But even the most liberal scholars will say that they were written in like the 70s, 80s, and 90s AD, while the most conservative ones say it's a lot earlier. But, but either way, you just have to compare it to some other things. The, the, the two earliest biographies we have of Alexander the Great were written in 323 BC, which was 400 years after his death, but historians consider them trustworthy. That the legendary stuff about Alexander arose over the next 500 years, not in the first 400. The gospels were written very close to the life of Jesus, within 30 to 60 years. And, and this meant that there were people still living who could have read them and said, nope, that didn't happen that way at all. The question here is how early can we find people believing in Jesus' atonement, forgiveness, his resurrection, and that he was the son of God? How early can we find out that they did that? That he was more than just a great teacher? And the answer is this, the earliest writings in the New Testament aren't actually the gospels. They're the letters of Paul who began writing his letters in the late 40s, just a few years after Jesus died and was claimed to have risen. There's a bunch of evidence that Paul included hymns and creeds, which are statements of belief in his letters. These were sayings and statements and songs that predated his letters by a lot of years. Those things rose right after the resurrection of Jesus. There's one, in fact, from Philippians chapter two, where Paul talks about Jesus being in very nature, God. Then there's another one from Colossians chapter one that I'm gonna, I'm gonna read to you here in a minute because this is a creed that arose right after the resurrection. Like this didn't happen hundreds or even dozens of years later. It wasn't written down then after some scholars got in a room and carefully like created this, this idea, this theology. This was a belief that formulated months, months after Jesus' death by real, normal people who knew him and saw him die and claimed that he rose again and appeared to them. So imagine that you're one of these people gathered in a tiny room in a house somewhere because you're scared that you're gonna face the same death as the, the one you follow, and yet you can't deny what you saw. You can't deny who he was and who he is. And, and, and they would gather together and they would say this creed out loud to one another. Like the one that's written in Colossians, it says this, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. 
And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The reality is that anyone who claims that Christianity is, is, is based on this mythical concept that was developed over long periods of time, that it got corrupted into legend, hasn't actually looked at or taken seriously the evidence that we have. There were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. They believed from day one that he wasn't just a great moral teacher, but that the Messiah had come. The beliefs were preserved. They were spoken to one another, solidified into creeds and, and songs. And then they were recorded accurately by smart and faithful people who knew that what they were recording was the most significant event in all of history. And this began to happen more, uh, like mere months after Jesus' resurrection. Does this prove anything? Maybe not. But we have to weigh the evidence. And what we have is ample evidence that this is a baby was born, who was born into poverty in the middle of nowhere and would grow up and reveal himself as the son of God being crucified and rising from the dead. And I'll just leave you today with another one of the earliest creeds. Paul incorporates it into his letter into the, to the Corinthian church. He talks about how this information was passed down to him. And here's what he says. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for, this, for, for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. What he's saying is, is what is still true today, that he was born here in a manger so that we could be born again with him into new life. And my prayer, my hope over the coming weeks is that you will consider the significance of his birth, not just as a place in world history, as a moment isolated in time thousands of years ago, but you would consider the significance of it for you personally, that you'd look hard at the evidence and open yourself up to the possibility that there was a savior born in a manger who's offering the greatest gift that he can possibly offer to you, himself. Let's pray. God, I just wanna say I'm grateful for you. I'm grateful for uh, this story that was given to us that, that does prove to be reliable what we have to do, God, is, is simply look at the evidence. Is simply look at the evidence. Does it prove anything? I don't know, but, but God, it seems that it's overwhelmingly pointing to the fact that you came here and that you lived this life and that you died and rose again for us. God, I pray that those who are wavering today would trust you, would just step into your, your arms and say yes. God, you're big enough to handle our questions. You're big enough to handle our doubts. And we want to trust you today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening. You can find out more about Love Lake Norman at lovelkn.org. 
If you live in our area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday. If you're not near our church, we want to encourage you to find a life-giving church to be a part of where you live. That will be a key next step on your spiritual journey. Please take a minute, subscribe to this podcast, and keep up to date with our weekly messages. And thanks again for joining the Love Lake Norman podcast.